So, the second full day of practice, and you're still here. It's a good sign. So we've been settling in these past two days, gathering our energy, trying to collect the mind, and sowing the seeds of loving-kindness. We've been cultivating the intention to open the heart, to recognize our connection with ourselves, with all beings, to open to the love that is our birthright, our natural state of heart. I honor the effort that you're putting in to doing this. It's not easy in the first days. We have a lifetime of conditioning to overcome, a lifetime of habit to break through. It's a huge energetic shift just to come into a retreat and this change of pace from our daily lives. So it's useful to call on one of our allies at this time, and that is patience. It's said in the texts that no greater thing exists than patience. In Buddhism, patience is considered to be one of the virtuous or beautiful states of mind and heart. In one of the Buddha's lists, the ten paramis or the great perfections, patience is included with generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And it's said that perfection, the perfection of these beautiful qualities, leads to Buddhahood. Given what it takes to become a Buddha, you can see why patience is on this list. It's good to keep in mind as we're practicing that patience, like loving-kindness, is something that can be cultivated in our practice and in our lives. Sometimes we think that we're either a patient person or we're not. But it's not that cut and dry. It's not true. It can be practiced and developed, just like metta. A friend told me a story recently about a show that she saw on television about Alzheimer's disease. And apparently in this show, there was a segment about a man taking care of his wife who was in an advanced stage of the disease. He had to repeat things over and over to her and perform the same tasks for her day after day. When asked by the interviewer how he could possibly do this and stay so balanced, he looked at his wife with so much love and said that this was his bride, his beautiful wife. In his eyes, this was the girl that he married so many years before. His love for her supported his patience. Because he loved her, he could stay present with her moment after moment, day after day, and do what needed to be done. 
I think quite often we have the wrong idea about patience, what it means to be patient. It may feel sometimes like it's a kind of punishment. Something is unpleasant or difficult, and we must endure. A kind of grin and bear it stance. But patience isn't really about enduring. It's much kinder than that, much more like that man who loved his wife. Really, it's about relaxing, opening to our experience, being with what's there. Rather than reacting to something or denying it or waiting for it to change because we don't like it, with a patient heart, we can be with what presents itself, actually take an interest in it, investigate it. We're receptive to our experience rather than clenching our way through it. Inherent in patience, to my understanding, is this quality of kindness. Think of how we're patient with children. There's acceptance. We let them be who they are. We're with them fully. We're attentive. Our hearts are open. And really, isn't that what kindness is? It's true that patience is often most needed when things aren't easy, when things aren't going as we would like. But when patience is present, we're able to stay with the difficult situation without resisting it, without fighting it, without getting completely irritated and losing our temper. However, patience doesn't mean that we're passively putting up with things or waiting for something better to come along. In fact, we're quite actively engaged with what is. We're present for it. And this is what our practice is about. Sharon Salzberg says in her book, A Heart as Wide as the World, true patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to use this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. An example of this is whenever we open to painful, painful states in our bodies in a skillful way. When we look deeply into the experience of that unpleasant sensation and we see it for what it is. This is how wisdom develops. We see that the pain is not solid, not I. Or in our daily lives when we're with a difficult or annoying person. And rather than avoiding that person or reacting to them out of aversion, opening to them to the best of our ability, finding a place of compassion, connection. This takes patience to be with our irritation and try not to shut that person out of our hearts. This is compassion. 
Recently, I had the experience of accompanying a good friend to a couple of different medical appointments. At the first stop in a hospital, I shared the waiting room with an elderly couple. They came in early for the wife's appointment, and they were now waiting past the time of the appointment. But I was quite struck by their relative good cheer. She was uncomfortable, in pain, waiting for some tests. But still, they connected with me. They were interested in their environment and what was going on around them. They weren't clenched. They were open to what was happening. They'd comment on the time now and then, but they didn't seem to tighten up around it. They were patient, tolerant. At the next office that we went to, Another couple came in as I waited for my friend, again an elderly woman, and this time a male friend of hers who drove her to the office. And in contrast to the first couple, this woman became very irritated immediately as soon as her appointment time arrived and she wasn't taken in to see the doctor. She was impatient. She felt personally offended by waiting even though her wait had only just begun, and it turned out not to be very long. She couldn't relax into being there, and she would look away whenever our eyes happened to meet. The difference was striking. We're like both of those examples. Sometimes we're present, open, connected, and we can be patient with the process of practicing. Other times we're reacting to the fact that we're not liking what's going on in our practice. We feel intolerant. We want it to be different. If you find yourself contracting or in a full-blown reactive state of hating the retreat and thinking that, in fact, maybe metta isn't for you after all, it may be time to take a look at what's going on and see if you can cultivate some patience. Not because you should, but because it will alleviate the suffering. One of my favorite yogi notes was from someone on a Vipassana retreat during which we were offering an afternoon period of metta as we most likely will next week. The note said, Metta seems too syrupy sweet. Pollyanna, goody-goody, I hate metta. (laughs) Hate was underlined. (laughs) There should be a separate room for it. (laughs) And then it was signed, love, (laughs) the yogi's name. (laughs) I liked this note because it was so honest. (laughs) We can feel like this at times. It's a process of purification, as we've been mentioning, and that can mean that the very opposite of what we're trying to cultivate arises. Can we open to that? Can we accept that too? Can we be patient when that happens. 
I looked up patience in the dictionary, and one of the definitions of it is a willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance in waiting. There are a couple of problems with this (laughs) way of thinking about patience in terms of what we're doing here. Neither suppression nor waiting is generally very helpful in meditation practice. Rather than suppressing the hindrances or the difficulties that can arise in our practice, it might be more useful to think in terms of restraint. Again, from the texts, it said, No higher rule, the Buddhas say, than patience, and no nibbana higher than forbearance. Forbearance is the act of restraining from something. And there are actually a lot of opportunities to do this on retreat. We don't really want to act on those impulses of restlessness, for example, you know, endlessly shifting our posture as a way to try to avoid being with uncomfortable energy in the body. It's very difficult to allow the mind to settle if we do this. It's difficult for concentration to build. And we do ask that you not act on the impulse to jump up off your cushion and run from the hall if restlessness gets really strong. And you can feel like that sometimes in practice. The same is true with annoyance or anger. It isn't generally recommended to act it out. You can imagine the possible scenarios. Those of you who have done retreats know the syndrome of yogi mind. This is when through becoming very quiet, very still, very sensitive, suddenly little things can become a very big deal. Acting out these irritations has resulted in what we've come to call the window wars, the temperature wars, the light wars, where certain yogis want the windows open and others want them closed, and certain yogis want the light on and others want it off. And if this gets acted out... (laughs) it gets a little crazy. So a way of practicing restraint or forbearance would be to notice the tendency to close or open the window and write a note to the office rather than acting it out. Or to make the energy of the annoyance the object of your attention at that moment, the object of your metta, to see if you can extend kindness and acceptance to the fact that You're uncomfortable, you're upset, rather than acting it out. So not suppressing the energy of resistance or irritation or anger, but seeing if you can be with it, open to it, accept it, explore it. And if you need to, use the mindfulness practice to help you do this, to come back to a place of balance and then return to the metta. So back to that definition about suppressing difficulties while waiting. Waiting is quite commonly associated with patience. It's interesting to see when we feel like we're waiting in our practice. In meditation, waiting isn't 
very helpful. Waiting means we're looking ahead, uh, focused on something in the future rather than what's happening right now, focused on that ideal state of love that we might like to be experiencing. What does this mean about our relationship to the present moment and what's happening now when we're looking ahead? Again, from Sharon's book, she quotes her teacher Munindra as saying, in meditation practice, time is not a factor. It is not something that is relevant in this process. Practice is timeless. This can be a really helpful perspective in terms of developing patience. Recently, one of my teachers suggested that we try to practice outside of time. He asked us to look at whether we were ever good enough in the framework of time. You can see how when we think about a future, we can always be better. We can't really fully open into being if we're caught up in becoming. So if you notice that you're waiting as you're practicing, you might just take a look and see what you're waiting for. Waiting for concentration to kick in? Waiting for the bell? Waiting for lunch? Try to use those times to wake up to the fact that you're not quite present with what you're doing in that moment. There's no need to judge yourself or your practice. Simply see if you can reconnect at that moment with the image of your metta object or the felt sense. Or once again, see if you can connect with the meaning of the phrases or your intention. Sometimes you might notice the energy of desire or expectation feeling impatient for something to happen. Thoughts may arise such as, okay, I've been practicing now for X many days, and I still don't feel particularly full of love or compassion. Watch out for those times when when those thoughts arise. When you feel that you want it to be a certain way, it's a good clue that you might not be settling into actually practicing in that moment. That we're, we're looking ahead. When expectations arise, we're looking for something else. Usually because we're not happy with the way things are. When we practice letting go of expectations, both on the cushion and off, so much more is actually available to us in our lives. Because we're there for it. We're not looking ahead to some imaginary thing in the future. I remember a metta retreat that I did in which I found myself kind of racing through the phrases in a more-is-better kind of model. (laughs) There was concentration, and I was able to stay with them. So I would have them going at this really rapid clip. But there was actually very little connection with what I was saying. Not surprisingly, when I talked to my teacher (laughs) in an interview, I was reminded that the quantity 
was not quite as important as the quality. (laughs) So you might take note of that in your practice. It was suggested that I should see if I could go into the process a bit more deeply, try and connect with the meaning, try to bring the feeling of metta into what I was doing, to soften with it, to relax with it, to be patient with it. I did this and it did help. Sometimes we think that if we just do enough phrases, we'll get somewhere. But there's no place to get other than here. No place to get other than now. Thomas Merton said, Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. This is actually a much kinder, more patient approach. The Buddha also talked about patience as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. What does this mean, the highest austerity? To me, it means that being patient may involve a kind of sacrifice. At times, the sacrifice is on a relatively superficial level, like giving up the pleasures of our daily life to come here, to practice. And sometimes the letting go that we do is on a much deeper level. We might find as we practice that we need to let go of our habitual, limited ways of seeing ourselves. If we think of ourselves as incapable of opening to unconditional love or compassion, we may have to let go of that in this practice. This is really deep work that you're doing here. So patience as both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. What does it mean to be devoted to something? We give ourselves to it fully. At times in practice, this might mean something different than what we thought it meant. Maybe you're not filled with loving-kindness each moment throughout the day. What keeps us going? Devotion can seem far-fetched at that point. I found a lovely quotation by Louisa May Alcott, who said, Far away, there in the sunshine, are my highest aspirations. I may not reach them, but I can look up and see their beauty, believe in them, and try to follow where they lead. So at times, reflection on what we're trying to do here may help. 
seeing if you can connect with the meaning of the words metta, or just kindness, or compassion. I've found it helpful at times in my practice also to remember that at any given time, in many places around the world, there are lay people and nuns and monks who are doing this practice, who are extending unconditional love in all directions to all beings, to us, to you. Connecting with the beauty of that, of those aspirations, if at times it's too hard to find your own. I bow to the struggle that sometimes ensues when we try to align our hearts in this way. When our experience is not what we expected or what we hoped for, when it sometimes, in fact, is the opposite, when boredom or frustration or self-judgment visits, it can be so disheartening. We might think that we're failing at the practice and lose our momentum. It takes a great patience at times like this to carry on. It may take stopping, letting go of the phrases in that moment, and just being still, resting, taking stock of what's needed in that moment. Being with sound, being with the breath, to come back into balance. Sometimes we get so caught up in the struggle that we can't see clearly. Last fall, a little bird visited me and pointed out this struggle. I was doing a self-retreat for a month in a small cabin in New York State. And one morning, well into the retreat, I heard something scrambling in the wood stove, which fortunately was not lit yet that day. It was in the elbow of the stovepipe, just coming into the stove, and I knew some kind of animal had fallen down the pipe and was now in there. I didn't quite know what to do, but I got a cardboard box and opened the door of the stove and put the box around the stove and hoped it would just come out safely. But that didn't entice this being to emerge. So eventually I went and got help from the man who owned the cabin who happened to be walking distance away. And he came back and it was really simple. He just lifted the lid off of the stove, which I didn't know it had a lid. I thought it was all connected. And in fact, it had a compartment at the top. So uh, my worries about this being falling into the ashes were not um, founded. It could have just been in this compartment. But in fact, what it was was this beautiful little bluebird. And it was just there in the corner of the, sto- in the opening of the stovepipe. And my friend just reached in and took hold of it gently, um, and we walked out onto the porch and let it go. This was all a little intense for me. (laughs) 
I had been totally alone and in silence for a couple of weeks already. So my friend left, and I was just sitting in a chair, kind of feeling the repercussions, the energetic repercussions of all this stimulation, when, much to my surprise, the same sound started up again. And this time I knew what to do, so I removed the stovetop, and there was a second bluebird. The two of them had come down, but one had been far enough back in the pipe that we didn't see it. Unfortunately, I was a little less bold on the grab than he was, so the bird ended up flying into the cabin. And then it proceeded to bang against the windows in an attempt to get out. And I would try to get the screen out of one and open it, but it would be at a different one. And it was actually very painful to watch. Finally, it ended up upstairs in the loft where I slept and where I had um, a sitting space and an altar. And the bird landed on the altar So I went over and sat on the edge of the bed, which was on the floor next to the bird. And the poor bird was just in a kind of stunned state. I think it had kind of knocked itself into some kind of stunned state. So I sat with it, and I just talked to it really quietly and softly, you know, and trying to help it calm down, maybe help us both calm down. (laughs) And I could see its little heart pounding. And eventually it did kind of regain its senses. And meanwhile, I had opened the the other window upstairs, taken the screen out of it. But then the bird flew to that window and started banging against the upper part of the window, where the bottom part was open. Fortunately, not for too long. And I put my hand up above it just to encourage it to go down, and it flew out the window. And I was really happy. (laughs) But I sat there. I was quite struck by this. It seemed to me so much like what happens in practice at times. When we come up against something that seems so solid and so unworkable and so unforgiving, so impossible, when actually all the while the opportunity to be free is right there before us. We just can't see the open window. Sometimes we need to wear ourselves out in the struggle before we can actually see the open window. It's part of the process. So you can honor the struggles that you get into in your practice. It's how we learn. It's how we hone our skills at accepting ourselves, at accepting the whole of our experience. At being with things unconditionally. Unconditional means even when we feel off track, not concentrated, not loving. Can I accept myself just as I am, even when the darkest, most unmeta-like stuff is coming up. I found this poem by a woman named Lala. 
She was a Kashmiri mystic from the 14th century. She said, Let them throw their curses. If inside I am connected to what's true, my soul stays quiet and clear. Do you think Shiva worries what people say? If a few ashes fall on a mirror, use them to polish it. The difficulties that arise in our practice are the ashes. We use them to polish the mirror that is our true nature. Open, unconditional, accepting, loving presence. The polishing is hard work. It takes practice. A lot of practice. Michelangelo you know, the amazing artist that he was, said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful after all. He also said, genius is eternal patience. Quietly persevering, bringing an even-tempered care to our practice, being diligent. This is all part of patience. Coming into the hall and sit. Continuing with the practice even when we don't feel like it. Starting again over and over. This is what it means to persevere. Our commitment to return again and again to the present moment, whether it's to the metaphrases or to the breath or to sensations in the body or to mental and emotional states. Just that commitment to come back, to start again. This is patience. Bringing our minds back again and again from distraction to our practice. I think of the example often of training a puppy. We put them down, tell them to stay, and they go. We go get them, put them down again, tell them to stay, and they go. And we do this over and over and over and over until they learn. And we do it as kindly as we can. Tremendous patience is required. We don't get angry or beat them or judge them. We just keep bringing them back. I'm told that Upandita Sayadaw said, the road to liberation is paved with patience. Some of the other qualities of patience that support our practice are calmness and stability. Calmness is that quality of stillness that we bring when we start a retreat, when we settle down, when we get quiet, and which deepens as we practice. It's an expression of patience. Not being rocked or swayed by all the changing mental and emotional states that come and go, but just continuing to be present. Continuing to extend the metta. This is stability, another aspect of patience. Again, from the texts, it said, From patience arises even-mindedness, 
This is the equanimity that comes as we practice. We see that different shifts in energy and mood come and go. But we just keep practicing. We're not blown off track by every change of wind. Another aspect of patience is courage. I remember in my first long retreat here at IMS, I had a little notebook because we were taking notes in order to report in our interviews. But I would occasionally take a page in this notebook to just write down one word for inspiration. I'd write it big across the whole page. And this is what I remember writing. Confidence, patience, and courageous effort. It takes courage. To have courage is to keep going with a sense of fearlessness, a sense of knowing that we can meet our experience, whatever it is. We can open to it. We can accept it. We can accept ourselves just as we are. It's very empowering to practice in this way. It takes courage. Think about what it's like when the opposite of patience is present, when we just can't settle, when we're feeling impatient. It's not possible at times like that to stay with something, to stay with a painful sensation, or to keep coming back to the metaphrases. There's no calm, no equanimity or balance of mind. When this happens, we lose it. Self-doubt comes up. And this can sabotage our practice. Outside of retreat, when this happens, we act out in our relationships with our loved ones or co-workers. We react out of a state of aversion to what we don't like. It's so painful when this happens. But if we can remember to notice the pain, it's useful. Rather than judging ourselves when we're impatient, intolerant, feeling the suffering inherent in that, inherent in the reacting mind, this is the cultivation of wisdom. We can learn to let go learn to forgive ourselves, and start again. It's such a gradual process, what we're doing here. I often think of metta practice in terms of planting a garden. We need to cultivate the earth. That alone can take quite a while, especially in rocky New England. It's so important We can't plant the seeds until we do that. And then we sow the seeds. This is what we're doing as we're doing the metaphrases. We're sowing the seeds of loving kindness. And then those seeds need conditions to be right in order to sprout and begin to grow. And even before the little seedlings appear, We might think nothing's happening, but there is growth. It's just that it's happening underground. We can't see it yet. 
then the little tender shoots appear and we do our best to protect them and allow them to come to maturity, to flower, to bear fruit. All those stages are critical. We can't skip the cultivation and the sowing and go right to the flower or the fruit. But we can keep in mind the incredible sweetness of the fruit or the flower to inspire us in this long, hard work of preparing the soil and sowing the seeds. Mahatma Gandhi said, I hold myself to be incapable of hating any being on earth. By a long course of prayerful discipline, I have ceased for over 40 years, to hate anybody. I know this is a big claim. Nevertheless, I make it in all humility. That is the sweetest of fruits, a heart free from the suffering that comes with being contracted or believing ourselves to be separate, capable of hating. We taste that fruit now and then in our practice, and it nourishes us deeply. Today, someone said to me that this practice is all about trust and patience. It's so true. Try to remember that as you tend to this garden of the heart. I'd like to close with a passage from Sri Nisargadatta. All you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain in search of pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. Let's sit for a moment. 